This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. This week, we're going to delve into the crisis in America's hospitals. The pandemic is taking a toll. You probably heard that, but... Have you listened to the toll that it's taking inside America's hospitals? It really is remarkable. And I personally think that it's uh, an issue that politicians in this country really aren't focused in on enough because it's a problem. The way these nurses and doctors are being treated by some patients in hospitals and the fact that a lot of them are just quitting, walking away. They've had enough. They've seen enough. They've done enough over the last couple of years. Coming up, we're going to have a 60 Minutes report from Sharon Alfonsi. When we arrived in Louisville, ambulances were rushing to hospitals only to wait almost an hour to drop off patients because emergency rooms were full. The hectic pace of treating cardiac cases and accident victims was pushed to new levels by another wave of COVID patients needing treatment. How quickly does it go from busy to insane? A matter of minutes. Um, we can have, you know, no patients signing into triage and then look out there and there's 10. But first, let's begin with what could be the end of the pandemic. At least that's what a lot of people hope. States across the country, Democratic-led states, in fact, dropping mask mandates. What will the Biden administration do? How is it responding to mask mandates dropping? Alex Gangitano is a reporter with The Hill. Alex, first thing I know about you is that you are a prolific Twitter user. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was searching through your stories. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I appreciate that. I try. <laughs> so our listeners can follow you. What is your Twitter handle? Yeah, it's at um, Alex Gangitano, all one word. And yeah, I would love some new followers. I appreciate that. <laughs> Uh, one of the stories that I saw in your Twitter feed is White House stands by school mask mandates despite some states lifting the rule. And so what we've seen this week is some states like New Jersey and Delaware promising to list, lift the mandates um, across the country. And yet White House reporters asking the White House about this, whether they are, you know, what their next move is going to be. What do you think it's going to be? Are they just waiting for the CDC to come to the same conclusion? Yeah, you know, I think these moves by governors and what's notable is these are Democrats, you know, the governor of New Jersey and the governor of Delaware who have announced this week to end mass mandates in, um, in schools. I think that those moves are putting pressure on the administration, which includes the CDC, to uh, change their recommendations. And so the White House 
it's it's not a surprise that they're standing by the CDC recommendation, but it also that puts them in a situation in which they're not going to say that governors Murphy and Carney are wrong. Uh, they're going to say, you know, governors can can choose how to handle this as they please, but we are standing by the CDC recommendation. So until that changes, I think we'll keep seeing that. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see when that does actually change. You know, uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked yesterday if the White House or the CDC has considered even putting out a roadmap for how governors could start to transition towards no masks in schools or, um, or, you know, when they might feel comfortable doing so. And she didn't have a firm answer for that. So it seems like these states are kind of getting ahead of the administration and the administration might have some catching up to do with how to handle this situation. I want to get your take on this. What it, has this been the pattern throughout this pandemic that the CDC has uh, been slower to react and implement changes than some of these individual states have. I think that's right. Because when the CDC implements a change, they're in a position that reversing it is a national, I don't want to say scandal is a little harsh, but you know, it's a national story when the CDC walks back something. Whereas states have a little less blowback, maybe if you look at it on that kind of a scale. But, you know, the CDC, they uh, when they changed the recommendation for isolation time, remember, uh, before the new year, they said if you get COVID, you don't have to isolate for 10 days, you could isolate for five and then go back to work. And that caused and wear a mask when you go back to work. And that caused blowback. You know, nurses were unhappy. Teachers were unhappy with that. And so every time the CDC issues something, people are going to be somebody's going to be unhappy about it and somebody's and others will will applaud it. So I think they just have to be extremely careful when they issue these kind of recommendations or changes, whereas governors have the opportunity to really assess where their state is, uh, you know, infection wise, hospitalization wise, and do what they think is best for their population. And in this case, in particular, students, which makes it you know, children are make it even more of a hot button issue. Does this mean that the new Virginia governor, Glenn Youngkin, was sort of a, ahead of the curve when he came out uh, after his inauguration uh, and wanted to give parents the choice of whether to have their kids wear masks in school? And now you have these Democratic governors in New Jersey and Delaware uh, sort of following suit. Right. Yeah. You know, the the White House is uh, not going to come out, I think, and say that Glenn Youngkin was right. And so the way that they have um, uh, balanced questions about what Youngkin has done versus what Governor Murphy in New Jersey has done is to, uh, to show the difference that Youngkin in Virginia, um, according to the White House, made it more difficult for schools and local officials to keep requirements if they determined that that would keep a school safe. So, you know, they wanted, he wanted or uh, moved to ban mass mandates, whereas other states, you know, lifted requirements. But if a school felt that it still would be beneficial for their students or teachers to wear masks, they were allowed to keep those. Um, so the White House has really worked to set that distinction. And I think that also has to do with the fact that these are Democrat governors lifting it in other states. So they're trying to set some 
you know, divide here in opinion. What's also will be interesting to watch is later this week, the president is going to Virginia uh, for uh, talk about policies, not necessarily COVID, um, probably bipartisan infrastructure bill. And so he, uh, Jen Psaki was asked in the briefing today if Glenn Youngkin will be part of that event. And we didn't hear a firm no. So he's headed to his state. And of course, you know, that's kind of become the epicenter of uh, where the conversation about masking in schools has been. What can you tell us about the team inside the White House that is making these decisions as it relates to the pandemic? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, we always hear that the White House relies on the guidance of the CDC and that that's where the experts are. Um, Dr. Walensky, you know, being one of them. Um, and then we have, you know, Jeff Science and, um, uh, of course, Dr. Fauci, who is, you know, famous during this pandemic and, and been with us through the long haul. And, you know, those are the president's top advisors about masking, about isolation times, about, you know, explaining why the CDC is going to issue or not issue a guidance one way or another. So it's been the, um, a consistent team. And I think, uh, it will, it's, you know, shows interesting windows into who's on board with what kind of requirement or not, you know, there's, um, vaccine requirements, there was conversation that has kind of slowed down a bit about if if airline passengers, people who fly on domestic flights should have to be vaccinated. And we heard Dr. Fauci saying one thing and kind of suggesting that that might be a good idea. We even heard the White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain, saying something and suggesting that might be a good idea. And then um, the White House ended up walking back those those comments and saying, if the CDC recommends it, then we'll go, but, you know, we're not saying it should, it should happen. So there's of course, differing opinions uh, within these people advising the president. Um, and I'm sure there are conversations behind the scenes. If I had to guess about the masking in schools, since again, it's such a hot button topic. Yeah. And they, while the white house may say, this is all about the science and we're, adhering to the guidelines that the CDC sets. There are going to be a lot of people out there who are skeptical about that, wondering, well, how much of this is politics? Exactly. And I think the governor's race in Virginia was a very clear indicator that this is a politicized issue. Uh, you know, Glenn Youngkin uh, ran in part on uh, choices for parents in schools, and one of those choices being mass mandates. And so uh, that it has been politicized that, you know, Republicans are more lenient on masks than, you know, Democrats and, and people put the blame on President Biden when you see little kids in the classroom wearing masks, but you see adults at concerts and restaurants not having to wear masks, you know, and all that has become so politicized. But now that we're seeing Democrat governors saying, all right, the kids in schools don't have to wear masks anymore. Um, where, you know, does the president fall on that? And, and would that perhaps allow this to not be such a political issue if states, regardless of party, can start to just slowly take a step towards returning back to normal? 
Well, it, it is a sign that we are taking a step toward returning back to normal, whatever that is. I almost forget what that is now <laughs> uh, with these governors deciding to lift these mandates. So uh, I think we can all agree that we hope life gets back to whatever normal used to be. That's right. And, you know, I don't have children that are school age, but I can't imagine uh, how difficult it is for parents dealing with the kind of normal and what's not normal and gearing uh, back and forth through that. So I think we're all eager for things to feel a little bit better. Well said. (laughs) Alex Gangitano, thank you of The Hill. Follow her on Twitter. Thank you. I appreciate that. 60 Minutes correspondent Sharon Alfonsi looked into the challenges nurses and doctors are facing in hospitals. Take a listen. When we arrived in Louisville, ambulances were rushing to hospitals only to wait almost an hour to drop off patients because emergency rooms were full. The hectic pace of treating cardiac cases and accident victims was pushed to new levels by another wave of COVID patients needing treatment. How quickly does it go from busy to insane? A matter of minutes. Um, We can have, you know, no patients signing into triage and then look out there and there's 10. Alyssa Parra is a supervising nurse in the emergency room at the University of Louisville Hospital, one of the largest in the region. The goal is to get his blood pressure under 160. Parra was one of five employees 60 Minutes followed to see how staff shortages were impacting hospitals. We agreed not to identify patients and to stay out of the way. It wasn't easy because patients were parked anywhere there was space. 85% of those hospitalized for COVID in Kentucky are not fully vaccinated. We are holding admitted patients in the emergency department for days upon days. So they're just sitting in the ER because there's not a bed? Yes. We can also pull out bed three, Michelle, if you need that bed. I feel like everybody is in survival mode. Um, Not only just us in the emergency department, I think the whole hospital is. What does that look like when you're trying to survive? What does that mean? How can we take care of patients effectively every single day with the staff that we have? Para told us her ER had fewer nurses than at any point during the pandemic. Usually, she'll have about a dozen nurses on a shift. But on the day we were with her, she had just nine other nurses to treat 71 patients in the ER, with 16 more in the waiting room. Have you had nurses quit that work for you? Yes. Tell me about that. You know, some of them have got to a point, you know, where they have stepped away and, you know, they've you know, moved on and said, you know, I, I need a break from this. I, you know, mentally, I just need a break. We just keep putting one foot in front of the other and, you know, trying to take it day by day. And I just try to bring positive energy every day. How hard is that right now? Difficult. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's getting more difficult each day. The contagiousness of the Omicron variant has stretched the staff further. Last month, 450 employees called in sick on the same day. I've got a meeting with them. Dr. Jason Smith is trying to fill the holes. He's the hospital's chief medical officer and a trauma surgeon. We had an entire wave of nurses and physicians who'd worked for 25, 30, 35 years. They said, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. And they left. Somebody quits. It's not like replacing a fry cook. And therein lies the issue. You know, if you think about a, a, a nurse, on average, it takes four to five years to train a nurse. It can take eight to 12 years to train a physician or a surgeon. So if you turned on the tap today and said, I'm going to double the amount so that we have enough, 
we still won't have enough for four or five years. It seems like you're describing a system at its breaking point. I think we are, and I think that's the biggest worry I have. Are we going to have a system that we can't support after this pandemic is over? What we expect when we come to the hospitals, there's going to be a physician, and there's going to be a nurse, and they're going to take care of me. But in the future, that may not look that way. We're going to have to rethink how we care for individuals in the hospital moving forward. Up on the seventh floor, we met Amanda Swinney in the ICU. As a respiratory therapist, her job is to help people breathe. I'm going to take a listen to your lungs, okay? Give you a breathing treatment. But over the last two years, she says she's barely had a chance to breathe herself. On this day, she was darting among 40 patients, almost double her normal workload. When you have a COVID patient who comes in not vaccinated, are you thinking now, like, it didn't have to be this way? I do get a sense of, wow, had you chosen a different route, then we wouldn't be where we are now. It's just frustrating. It's frustrating when there's something out there that can keep you from dying. It can lower your odds of being hospitalized and having severe disease. I just don't understand why more people don't. Swinney told us that sometimes she feels numb. There's like this thing called compassion fatigue where, you know, I feel like I gave so much those first like nine months and got so close to so many patients that we lost that now I almost can't do that. It's just too much loss, I guess. Some of the nurses have described it like a war zone, but in a war zone, right, they, they change out the front line every right. so often. Right. We can't, we can't get away from it. We can't work from home. We can't do virtual. You know, we have to show up, and it's just, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. Is this the new I don't reality? Know. I'm not sure. I don't know that I could, in another year, keep up this pace. Hospitals in Louisville have been working together so they don't have to turn away patients. But staff shortages in other parts of the country have forced health systems to cancel elective surgeries, temporarily close parts of maternity wards, or leave hospital beds empty. Nurses are often the backbone of those hospitals. In a survey last fall, the Kentucky Nurses Association reported one in four nurses said they were likely to quit their job in the next three months. Delanor Manson is the CEO of the association. When you think about nursing as being 53% of the healthcare workforce, those are large numbers. You have to know that there was a nursing shortage prior to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. The pandemic has ripped off the bandage. They're overworked. Mm-hmm. They have to do things that it doesn't take a nurse to do. Like what? Baths, uh, walking patients, um, turning patients. But someone else could do that. It doesn't take a degree or a license to do those things. That work is important for patient care and is usually handled by aides. Now they're in short supply, too. So in some hospitals, nurses have had to mop floors or empty trash. As soon as you transfer a patient or discharge a patient, it's not five minutes later you're getting another patient. That's a drink and a potty break. Yes, but four is getting discharged. Are you ready to get out of here? Julia Anderson is an ICU nurse. She was just 19 when she began her career in 2020. Anderson had graduated high school early, enrolled in a fast-track training program, and was quickly assigned to treat the sickest COVID patients. I imagine there's nothing they can teach you in nursing school to prepare you for this moment. No, not at all. I mean, they didn't teach you that you would have to zip up your first body bag. (laughs) 
I, I still remember the first patient's name, the first room, what happened, and everything. Um, and that was hard. The frequency of COVID deaths here has declined, but the stress hasn't. Anderson says nurses are increasingly being confronted by angry patients, some of them enraged by the long waits for care. Last week, I had a patient put her hands on me after cussing me out for probably 10 minutes, um, put her hands on me and pushed me as hard as she could. I've been called every name under the book. You have? Oh, my goodness, yes. In one ear, out the other ear. You know? Really? That doesn't bother you? It used to. Yeah. It used to bother me really bad. I mean, I've, I've cried before some of the names I've been called mm-hmm. by family members, by patients. But now, I guess I'm immune to it. Does anybody who's not in that room, in that hospital, understand truly? I tell my mom all the time, I wish you were a fly on the wall for one shift. But until you can get somebody who goes through it with you and has a patient pass in one room, but then the next patient's on their call light saying, you forgot to bring me my water. You told me you would 45 minutes ago. And you put on a face and you say, yes, ma'am, I'm so sorry. I'll bring you that water. Knowing that you are about to cry. You are about to let it out. But you can't. We got a sense of that when we met Crystal Totten. She works with patients who need ECMO, a machine that oxygenates blood outside the body and is used when lungs are too weak to do the job. Last September, a fellow nurse and friend, Becky Folks, became one of her patients when Folks became sick with COVID. I remember just like, you know, just breaking down because seeing somebody at their worst point, you know, not knowing if they're going to live or die is, you know, it's very, is very hard. Folks is a heart and lung nurse. She was vaccinated and working through the pandemic. She was in bad shape when you saw her? Oh, she, yeah. So for a patient to need to go on ECMO, it's a last-ditch effort. Um, it's a maximum form of life support. It looks better than Last month, Becky Folks began to improve. She was taken off the ECMO machine, but still has a tracheostomy tube. It's unclear if the 49-year-old mother of two will ever get back to nursing. What does Becky's story tell us about all the nurses? It's weird to say she's one of the lucky ones um, who have fought through this. You're putting yourself and your family at risk, you know, every day to take care of people. Um, Even people who, I've had people look me in the face and tell me it's not real and that they're putting chips in your body. That has to be hard as a nurse. It's it's really hard. Especially when your friend's down the hall. It's it's very difficult. It feels like a slap in the face. This is our story, but you could take this story to New York, Chicago, L.A., Phoenix, you know, Atlanta. You will hear this story at pretty much every hospital, every healthcare system across the country right now. We invited Dr. Jason Smith's colleagues from the two other large medical systems in Louisville to join our conversation. Dr. Stephen Hester is chief medical officer with Norton Healthcare, and Dr. Chuck Anderson is with Baptist Health. Raise your hand if you're hiring at least 50 nurses right now, open positions. Oh. <laughs> at least 50. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If they walk in tomorrow, we'll take them. You'll take them. Right. 100? Yes. Yeah. 150. 150 nurses you're looking for? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Pre pandemic, uh, I think we all had a buffer. Mm-hmm. I think our buffer is a fine line right now, and that's what's making it difficult. The supply of nursing school graduates is also falling short, leaving hospitals without enough reinforcements. Okay, well, we're going to look at your belly. Although applications to nursing schools are up, 
Record numbers of prospective nurses are being denied admission because there aren't enough instructors. Last year, 1,700 qualified applicants in Kentucky were turned away from nursing schools because of the lack of teachers. This pandemic will end. All pandemics end. But it's the carry forward from what we're having to do and the amount of human capital that we're burning through right now that are going to impact the healthcare system for the next two, five, ten years. And a wave of 70 million aging baby boomers is about to flood American health care. Doctors, technicians, and an estimated 270,000 new registered nurses will be needed to help care for them, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Why do you think we haven't been talking about what's next? Mm -hmm. Well, it's a difficult conversation to have. Um, It's not right in front of your face. This is, what's the chronic problem? How am I going to manage the chronic problem? And in healthcare, managing chronic problems are often much more difficult than, you know, the the acute problem. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing now in a pandemic may become an everyday occurrence, and that's not something that we can sustain for decades. Dr. Mel Herbert is a professor of emergency medicine at UCLA and the CEO and founder of MRAP. All right, Mel, thanks for being with us. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. All right. So what that 60 minutes piece outlines is probably not unique to the state of Kentucky. Uh, Are there hospitals across this country that are at a breaking point right now because of the pandemic and what they've been facing day to day, hour to hour? This is playing out all over the United States. It's also playing out in other countries, but it's it's worse here in the United States for a number of reasons. But this is not a unique story at all. This is happening everywhere. Um, People are leaving the profession. This pandemic has crushed healthcare professionals for multiple different reasons. And the cascade of effects is that we are in a crisis that might take us years to get out of. It's been estimated that over 20% of the healthcare workforce has less left the profession in the last few years because of the stresses of what's going on. And I can sort of explain the cascade by giving you one story. I just talked to a, a physician in the East Coast, and she's 50 years old and is planning to work until she was 60 in emergency medicine. But in her group, there are about 100 docs. And in the last 18 months, 20 of those docs have left because of the stress of watching people die and and the moral injury of trying to care for the unvaccinated and being abused at work, frankly. So 20 of the docs have left. And what that means is that the docs that have left behind have to do more nights, have to do more weekends, have to be exposed to more virus, have to do more work, and often with no more compensation. So that results in them being more stressed and more people leaving. So she's going to leave the profession because of this crisis, because of this trickle-down phenomenon that so many people have left and there's so much stress that people are leaving, which means that there's more work for the people left behind, which means the people left behind are going to leave. So it is really a crisis. Well, so is this crisis the result of a hospital system or hospital systems across the country that were underprepared? Or is this simply the result of the ongoing pandemic? Well, it's both. You you know, here in the United States, the majority of the hospitals are uh, for-profit. And if you're for-profit, you don't want to have too much uh, waste, you might call it, or redundancy. So you tend to run pretty lean. Now, if you have a situation where there's a lot more patients coming in, a lot more resources needed, you can outstrip them very quickly, as occurred in this pandemic. 
And it's a real financial problem for the hospitals because really the driver of the finances for the hospital is not actually the emergency department. It's actually uh, things like surgery and elective surgery. And when I say elective surgery, I don't mean surgery you don't need. I'm talking about like hip replacement, but you're not bleeding to death. You don't need the surgery right now. So if you overwhelm the hospital system with uh, COVID patients and you're not getting the income from your usual activity like surgery, then the hospitals can go broke. And you've seen this right across the country. There is a huge financial burden that the hospitals are having because they can't do their normal activity, which makes the money because they're looking after COVID patients. And in a system which doesn't have any room, then you can collapse your hospitals. And at the same time, if your nurses are leaving and the only way you can get nurses to work in your hospital is to offer what we call traveling nurses, these are nurses for hire, uh, sums of money which are extraordinarily higher than the amount of money that you're paying your usual nurses, what you then have is your nurses that are getting, say, fifty dollars or $60,000 a year leaving your hospital system. Then in order to run your hospital, you have to pay the traveling nurse, which might be the exact same nurse who's left, gone to work for this company, and now you're going to pay them $150,000, putting even more financial burden on your hospital. So you can see you've got all of this perfect storm that's occurred financially and with your healthcare workers so that hospitals are in real, real trouble. <laughs> wow. What you, what you outlined there is – I mean it is a nightmare. I can't imagine – working in a hospital right now and the stresses that the doctors, the hospital staff, the nurses are facing. At the outset, you talked about how what's happening here is different than what's happening in Europe. In what specific ways can you give us the contrast? Well, again, it comes down to this sort of for-profit model that we have in the U.S., um, where if you need to make money by doing surgery, you're going to tend to make sure that the surgeries occur and push uh, everything else aside. So um, I've talked to a lot of docs uh, across the country, and they say the scenario then is playing out with the hospitals that are for-profit in particular really want to keep their profit center going. And so they push all of those COVID patients uh, into the emergency department, and it's called boarding. So the emergency departments will often have uh, 50 even a hundred people that are boarding in the hallways in the emergency department because they want to keep the beds upstairs for the patients that are going to have surgery. And you can imagine what a disaster that creates for the emergency department. Now you've got patients everywhere. They're flowing out of the rooms. We talk to doctors all the time that are doing physical examinations in the hallway under a sheet, um, moving patients in and out of hallways. Um, if you don't have that same profit incentive, you would just send those patients upstairs and say, this is not an emergency department problem. This is a hospital-wide problem, and we all have to work on this together. So depending on your funding, you can see kind of the the problems that can result. If you have a for-profit model, you've got to make sure that you're making a profit. If you're in a, a not-for-profit model, you can be a bit more flexible. But it's not just the money that's the problem here as well. You know, there's this issue as well that there are a significant subset of patients who are very angry at healthcare workers. The healthcare workers were the heroes at the beginning, but there's all of this dis disinformation and there are people that come to the hospital demanding therapies that do not work, come demanding that they get ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And one of the docs I spoke to just two days ago was pushed to the floor by a patient that was so angry that the doctor would not prescribe them these medications that don't work. 
and the patient became violent. And we hear these stories more and more frequently. So not only are you going to work and you're overwhelmed and the hospitals are just sort of out of control, but there's a real threat that uh, if you do not do what this person believes is the right thing because what they heard on a podcast, you're at risk of being physically abused, certainly mentally and uh, verbally abused, but even physically abused by your patients. You don't want to go to work under those circumstances. Oh, certainly not. And they, and that is what we saw uh, in the 60 Minutes piece is um, patients attacking nurses and doctors. You know, So these aren't isolated incidents. It's happening across the country. It's happening um, with increasing frequency. And in fact, there's even some uh, legislatures, Arizona is an example, where they want to pass laws to make it a felony to uh, abuse uh, physically or even uh, verbally healthcare workers in an attempt to try and preserve the healthcare system. I can tell you it takes a long time to become a doctor. It takes a lot of study. It takes a lot of expense. If you then are in a profession where people are physically abusing you, you're not going to stay there very long. There was a recent study that suggested that in the emergency department for ER nurses, there's almost a 100% chance that you will be physically abused as a nurse in the emergency department during the course of your career. Um, you will not have doctors and nurses going into emergency medicine, going into even medicine if this continues. It's There's no amount of money that is worth going to work and being abused. And, and just to go back about some of these attacks that you referenced, they're initiated by people who have uh, bought into the misinformation out there yeah that's a it's a big part of it people believe with sort of almost um cult like um intensity that these therapies that they read about on Facebook are the right therapies and that there's some mass conspiracy by the healthcare workers and the healthcare system to prevent them getting these magical cures like ivermectin and, and hydroxychloroquine, which really we have very little evidence that do anything and perhaps are even harmful and no medical society of any reputation is suggesting them. But if you really believe that this medicine is the right thing that will help you or help your loved ones and the doctor's not giving to you, you can understand why people are becoming frustrated because they believe this conspiracy that all of these doctors and nurses are, are holding back this therapy. It's a crazy situation and their frustration comes out as violence. And it, it's just, it's a terrible situation. Those people that are purveying these misinformations are not only killing people, they're also uh, threatening the entire healthcare system because of what people are reacting to uh, in terms of uh, believing one thing that is absolutely not true, but believing it in a cult-like way. Is, is there a way, or based on your experience, are you seeing a direct line between states with low vaccination rates and hospital systems with the most problems, whether it's attacks on nurses and doctors, whether it's um, hospital systems that are – um, at a breaking point. Can you draw that connection between these states with low vaccination rates and those problems? You probably can. You know, I don't want to sort of um, overstep the science because it's going to take us some time to get there. But it's it's not hard to draw the line that if you have a vaccinated population, a very highly vaccinated population, you are much less likely to overwhelm your healthcare system because your chance of having to admit a patient with COVID 
is so much less if you're vaccinated. So if you look in Australia, if you look in Israel with very highly vaccinated groups, the healthcare system is certainly stretched, but it's not breaking. If you have a state or an area where a significant percent of the population is unvaccinated, those patients are way more likely to need the services of the hospital. And so it doesn't take a giant leap to think that those places are going to be much more stretched. And so um, we do see that. We won't know exactly how bad it is, but the logic is there. If you have a 10 to 50 times chance of being admitted if you're unvaccinated and vaccinated, if you just do the math, if you've got millions of people in your state unvaccinated, that's a lot of people that are going to require hospitalization. If you're in a place where most people are vaccinated, that number is one-tenth that. And um, some studies say it's about one-twentieth the chance that you'll need to be admitted. So it doesn't take uh, too much math to work out. A big unvaccinated population is going to have a much bigger problem. So we've talked about the problem. Let's talk about the solution. I haven't seen a lot of uh, um, political leaders in this country, the White House, you know, maybe they've talked about how uh, hospitals are stretched thin. Maybe members of Congress have done the same thing. But I don't see anybody at the national level talking about solutions. Do you? And what do you think the solution can be? Well, we live in a very difficult time. You know, one of the solutions is to pass um, laws like we're seeing in Arizona to make it very clear to people that you can't come into an emergency department and abuse the healthcare workers with big signage that says, if you do that, that is a felony and that will be on you for the rest of your life. You can't just do that. And there's a sense right now that uh, you get to abuse healthcare workers. Um, and that's one thing we could do. Uh, vaccine mandates in other countries are just part of being part of society. And I think we need them here, but uh, this country is very different in terms of its ability to absorb mandates. Other countries accept public health as important. But here in the US, for some reason, it's become um, something that people just don't want to do, or at least a significant subset of people. But I think we need to get over that. And I think there do have to be mandates. And we have to make people understand if you want to be part of society, if you want to go to the grocery store and to use the roads, there's a certain contract that we all have to be part of. You cannot get in your car and drive drunk and kill people. You cannot walk down the street and shoot people. That's obvious. You can't do that. In the same way, you can't be a vector for a very infectious, very deadly disease if you want to be part of society. So vaccines, which are incredibly safe, which have been studied in millions of people, should be part of the contract of being part of a society like they are in other countries. So if you don't want to be in society and you want to live on a hill away from everybody and never interact, okay. But if you want to send your kids to school, if you want to go to work, if you want to go to the grocery store, there's certain public health things that you have to do. And being vaccinated should be part of that. That's a hard thing to sell in this country, but that's what we need to do. It is part of the social contract. Dr. Mel Herbert, thank you for your time. This has been, for me, it's been an enlightening conversation because, yeah, I heard about you know, hospitals being at the breaking point, but to see and to hear that report from 60 Minutes and then to follow it up with this discussion with you has been um, extremely informative. And I hope that something is done because, you know, obviously we need our healthcare workers to be 
healthy and safe, especially now. Yeah, thanks for giving us the time to just talk about these things. It's hard for people to see it because you go out the front door and you don't see the dead bodies. But if you go to the hospitals, it's a terrible situation. Jeremy Duru, a professor of law at American University's Washington College of Law, is also among the nation's foremost sports law authorities. He is the author of Advancing the Ball. Jeremy, thanks for being with us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you, Jeff. So, as you know, Brian Flores, former coach of the Miami Dolphins, has filed a lawsuit against the NFL. So, in the last week, there has been movement on this front in terms of teams in the NFL hiring black coaches or at least seeking to hire black coaches. What do you think, Jeremy? Is is that an indication that the Rooney rule is working or that the NFL is concerned about legal action? You know, Jeff, it's hard to say exactly what that uh, indicates. Uh, I can say it's a positive thing. You know, I'm happy for Coach McDaniel. I'm happy for uh, Coach Smith um, that, that McDaniel's getting his first uh, opportunity and, and Coach Smith is uh, you know, having had great success, almost winning the Super Bowl, um, uh, is, you know, is going to have another opportunity here in Houston. Um, but, you know, I would, I would caution us not to get too excited about these two hires. One thing that we've seen tracking this over the course of the last couple of decades is that the NFL's equal opportunity progress comes in fits and starts. And it's often, um, uh, negatively impacted by backsliding. Uh, and so what we want to see is consistent, systemic, linear improvement. And, you know, it's going to take us a hiring cycle or two to be able to conclude that we're really seeing improvement. Unfortunately, I don't think we can extrapolate too much from these two hires. Were you at all surprised by Miami's hire? Uh Maybe a little bit. Um, you know, you hear uh, about who's coming in to interview and how the interviews are going. And uh, McDaniel uh, certainly wasn't among, I guess, the most heralded candidates uh, uh, to interview. Um, but as I understand it, he had a really good interview and uh, resonated with the, the club and they made the hire. So, you know, certainly we wish him the best. Do you think the hiring of McDaniel uh, following the Firing of Brian Flores in Miami uh, diffuses the grounds uh, for the legal action that Brian Flores is taking. No, no, I don't. I mean, I, you know, it, it certainly will, it, it will be argued that it does. Um, I suspect that'll be an argument um, that that Miami makes at some point. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't think it does. I mean, Flores is lawsuit is based in um uh, its foundation is broad and it's thick he identifies these uh you know league-wide um headwinds double standards that black coaches meet that in the complaint he had he he notes that black coaches have an average head coaching tenure in the national football league of 2.5 years while white coaches have one of 3.5 years after a winning season black coaches are 25 percent likely to be fired white coaches six percent um white coaches are more likely to get second opportunities than black coaches and the numbers uh, go on and on so he's got those broad statistical uh, uh, items of support. And then he wraps around that his experience in Denver, his experience in Miami, his experience in New York. And so keep in mind, he's suing those individual clubs, but also the league generally. So this one particular hire 
in Miami, um, while it probably will be held up um, by Miami as an indication that the suit is meritless, I don't think it ultimately goes um, uh, I don't think it could also ultimately be viewed as something that diffuses or weakens his overall claim. Should these black coaches who are now being considered, should they think twice about accepting these jobs or should they, you know, should they feel like, you know what, somebody has to get this opportunity or someone should get this opportunity? Why not me? Yeah, sure. That's a really good question. Um, you know, I do not think they should decline, uh, the opportunities unless they deduce based on the nature of the opportunity and of the offer that they are being put in a position to fail. So going back a year, um, it's been argued by many that David Cully was put in a position to fail, uh, in Houston and was essentially brought in just as a one-year bridge. And in fact, despite extraordinary challenges with the roster and so many different regards there, he actually did a pretty good job, I think, um, by most standards. But yet, you know, he ended up getting fired. And so some people say that's evidence that he was going to be a goner after one year from the beginning. We don't know for sure, but that has been uh, alleged. And so maybe in a situation where a uh, coach has reason to believe this really um, you know, is a situation where there's no way to succeed. I could see a coach declining the opportunity, but you know, only 32 clubs in the league, only, I don't know, an average of five or six each year looking for a new head coach. These jobs are, 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 uh, you know, few and far between. And so to decline one might mean you've declined the one opportunity that you'll ever get in your career to be a head coach. And I think that'd probably be a difficult thing to look back on at the end of a career if you didn't have another opportunity to take such a job. I'm going to throw in a name out there, Jim Caldwell. I'm sure you recognize that name, but he's a former African-American coach of the Colts and the Detroit Lions. Yes. And, you know, I'm just doing some some research here on him. His first season as a head coach in the NFL, he was coaching the Colts. He finished the season with a 14-2 and record. Okay, the Colts went undefeated that season. They got off to a 14 and 0 start. Uh, obviously they ended up losing those two games. But, you know, then he he got fired. I don't know if it was a couple of years later, but this is someone that a lot of people in the NFL still talk about as someone who should be a head coach. Because, you know, even when he coached the Detroit Lions, they were respectable. You know, and, and yet he keeps interviewing for these jobs and he doesn't get a head coaching position. And I think, you know, for me as someone who uh, loves the NFL, loves watching the NFL, loves going to games, I am a season, season ticket holder for the Ravens. You know, when I hear Jim Caldwell's story, his story, it, it, it really kind of makes me sick because he, he, he is a proven winner in this league and yet he can't get another job. Yeah, Jeff, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. Makes me sick too. I mean, so allow me to say, if I may, Jim Caldwell is one of the most decent human beings that you'll ever meet. Let's put aside for the fact that he's an extraordinary coach. He is a quarterback whisperer. He gets the best out of his quarterbacks. We all know that. 
He had the success he described in Indianapolis uh, and then went to Detroit. And, you know, he had success there. I mean, let's look at Detroit's um, uh, uh, history of winning and losing. Their overall, sadly, a losing franchise have been for decades. They've had blips of winning, but generally um, they're losing. You see, um, you know, Matt Stafford finally felt he had to leave and you see what he's doing now. So the Lions have had all sorts of struggles and Jim came up and he brought in up years while he was there. The coach before him struggled. He took things up. The coach after him struggled. Okay, so he's a great coach. Um, he's a incredible human being and he can't get another opportunity. And it is just, it, that one is very, very upsetting. I agree with you. It makes me sick. He should have another opportunity and he just hasn't gotten one. Tony Dungy, another successful coach, uh, not, you know, I don't bring his name up because he's throwing his hat in the ring again, but he has been critical uh, in the last several days about the NFL and its hiring practices and, you know, um, he has said that, you know, why do we keep having to have this conversation about the NFL trying to do better? They, they commit to, oh, we're going to have more seminars. We're going to have, you know, we're going to take a look at this. We're going to try and improve it. But to your point earlier, we just keep going in this kind of circle where there's progress and then, you know, the progress is reversed, it seems. Um, why do you think that is, 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 is this a question of ownership or is it about Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner? Um, so I've sat in a lot of meetings, uh, league meetings discussing this issue. And, um, uh, I believe this is a issue of individual clubs. I believe, you know, no organization is perfect and the NFL is not perfect. When I say NFL, I mean, you know, the front office on, on Park Avenue it is not perfect. But there's commitment to this issue there. There is. And the challenge they faced, whether it come, whether it has to do with the implementation of the Rooney rule or just a general acceptance, uh, you know, a club by club culture, um, uh, 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 accepting that diversity is a good thing, that intentional deliberate searches are a good thing, that equal opportunity is critical. Um, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the clubs have fallen down. I mean, the failing, I think, really is with the clubs. I think the messages coming out of the league are strong. Um, but it's the clubs making the individual decisions. And, and for those listeners who, who don't, um, you know, follow the NFL or professional sports, uh, uh, closely, certainly in the NFL, each club has its own ownership. And the 32 clubs together are member clubs of the National Football League, but each one makes its own decisions. And so despite the fact that I think the NFL is doing a reasonably good job of pushing for equal opportunity, if a club doesn't want to do it, then the club's not going to do it. And that's the attitude that has led to the allegations that Brian uh, Flores uh, has brought against the league and the clubs. What more do you think the NFL and these individual clubs need to do besides actually sitting down and having a serious interview with these black candidates. What more do they need to do in your opinion? Well, I think the first thing is that point you just made, which is that they need, the clubs need to sit down and have a serious, meaningful interviews with candidates of color. 
That's what the Rooney rule requires. Um, but clubs haven't been doing it. Some have. Some clubs have been doing it, but many clubs haven't been doing it. It's led to Brian Flores' allegation. Many clubs have not been doing it. And when clubs haven't done it, the NFL, and here's where the NFL has come up short. When clubs haven't done it, the NFL has not enforced the rule, penalized the clubs, ensured that it wouldn't happen again. And so the consequence has been, I think, clubs seeing that other clubs aren't showing great fidelity to the rule, aren't really, you know, uh, 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 offering meaningful uh, interviews of candidates of color. The league does not come down on those violating clubs. And then other clubs think, well, hey, this isn't that big of a deal to the league. Let me just hurry up and get the candidate I want. And so, um, and they flout the rule and the league doesn't do anything to them. And so it ends up being a cycle. And I think that is the cycle that has pulled us back from where we were in 2013, 2014, 2015, when we were making substantial uh, uh, gains. So that's the number one thing that needs to happen is the interviews of candidates of color must be taken seriously. And if they're not taken seriously, the league needs to punish clubs who don't take them seriously. And when you say punish clubs that don't take this seriously or the process seriously, do you mean a financial penalty or draft picks? What are you, what are you suggesting? I think both and another. That is to say, um, you know, when the back when the uh, Rooney rule was violated for the first time, the only time the league has found a violation of the rule, despite the fact that I think there have been several violations since, but the one time the league found a violation of the rule was in 2003. Paul Tagliabue was the commissioner then, and um, he fined uh, the uh, general manager of the Lions at the time. $200,000 said that the next violation um, would trigger a, a fine of $500,000. So um, the, you know, so fine. Yes. I mean, the fines can be levied. Now we all know these are multi-billion dollar entities. So a fine of two or $500,000 maybe isn't really moving the needle, but the fines can be greater. Uh, a couple of years ago when the, when the league, updated the Rooney rule. Um, they specifically gave Commissioner Goodell discretion to impose punishment when the rule wasn't um, adhered to. And uh, and it did not limit potential punishments to fines. So it could be fines. It absolutely could be uh, uh, draft picks. Um, uh, and, you know, there could be other creative um, uh, 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 punishments that could come into uh, play. Um, but I think if, if you, if you, if you use draft picks, I think that, that would move the needle even more than the fine of even a couple million dollars. You know, draft picks are gold in the National Football League. I mean, they are not treated lightly. And so if, if a club knows that it will lose a draft pick or have their draft pick dropped, you know, in a round, I think that could really mean something and could, you know, could be impactful. You may have a point there. And, You know, I, while I do not root for the Pittsburgh Steelers, I do admire Steelers' ownership. Uh, The Rooney family has owned that team for, you probably know better than I do, but uh, what, more than 60-something years, probably? More than that. I think it may go back to the 30s. I mean, it's way, yeah. More than that. It's incredible. It is incredible, and it's such a stable franchise. And the Rooney Rule, of course, named after the Rooney family. Um, But, you know, when you look at the rule and you look at that organization, 
it is followed that rule. You know, people might forget that Mike Tomlin uh, was hired at a, at a relative, relatively young age. And to a lot of people at that time, he was a relative unknown. Uh, and yet the Rooney family took a chance on him, but they also saw that, you know, here is a smart young man who happens to be black, but he can coach and he's a winner and he's proven that. And even to this day, I don't think he gets uh, the respect that he has earned coaching that team to winning season after winning season after winning season. But he was in his early thirties when he got that job. Um, and so, you know, that's why I, you know, look at that franchise and say, you know, look what they did. They took a chance and it's paid off many times over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that franchise is a remarkable franchise. I actually do a lot of work with Jim Rooney, one of Dan Rooney's sons, um, and have come to deeply, um, uh, respect, uh, the franchise and the familial, um, uh, 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 culture, perspective that's a part of the franchise, and what the franchise has done. As you said, the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers have followed the rule, but moreover, the rule is named the Rooney Rule because the owner of the Steelers, Dan Rooney, who's now deceased, um, but when he was alive, pushed for the rule hard, pushed for its implementation, um, and then pushed year after year to make sure that clubs did their best to offer equal opportunity to every candidate coming in the door to interview. And moreover, Dan Rooney got that sensibility from the work that he did in the league before the Rooney rule came in, even came into being in the 1970s, 1980s. You know, in the 70s, he was approached by, uh, had a conversation with Bill Nunn, who ended up being a great scout for the Steelers at the time. He was a journalist. Um, and Bill Nunn said that, you know, Dan Rooney was talking about how he was into equal opportunity and wanted a team that was diverse. And Bill Nunn says, yeah, but you're, you know, you need to, uh, uh, walk the talk. Um, and Dan Rooney said to Bill Nunn, African American, um, well, I need help. Can you come and work for us? It was that simple. Bill Nunn comes into the organization helps the Steelers create a scouting program that goes to historically black colleges and universities, which most, most NFL clubs totally shunned and um, developed a diverse team that dominated the 1970s. So what Dan Rooney, you know, understood is that if you search a broad pool for talent, whether we're talking about coaches or free safeties or linebackers or whatever, if you search a broad tool for talent, a broad pool for talent, you are going to come up with the most talent. And they did that and they won. And he brought that same sensibility to the equal opportunity push with respect to coaches and helped to get the Rooney rule passed um, and implemented. And, the, and and I think what's really unfortunate is that the way that it's being, um, you know, c- clubs are effectuating the rule is really a disservice uh, to Dan Rooney. His name is on this rule. Um, and the rule is a good, sound rule, and clubs are flouting it. And that, you know, that, that, uh, that, that bothers me. You talked earlier about how it's painful that Jim Caldwell isn't getting, um, you know, opportunities going forward. Uh, to me, it's similarly painful, uh, that, um, you know, Dan Rooney, um, uh, his legacy is essentially being tarnished by these clubs that aren't effectuating 
a rule designed to make the NFL better. And I, you know, I recall, you know, sometimes when you ask the ownership or a general manager, well, why did you pick this guy over that guy? Well, he, he was just the right fit at the right time. Um, you know, when they're asked questions about diversity. And that is the other thing who, you know, that is a, a, a black man as a journalist, I hear those kinds of statements and, you know, it, it just does not sit well because there are just, you know, I could list 10, 15 qualified black coaches. Uh, you can look in, in the collegiate ranks. I mean, look at what Deion Sanders did at Jackson State this past season. You know, I mean, he, he was an incredible uh, professional football player, college football player. He's always been this, uh, you know, motivational type of speaker. Uh, and he's certainly the kind of uh, coach that kids would be attracted to, that, you know, even NFL players would love to play for. Um, and why isn't he being considered for some of these jobs? Because he's coaching at Jackson State. You know, I, I would argue that no matter what job you put him in, he will win because, you know, and as a former college football player myself, you play for your coaches, you know, you play for your teammates and he is the kind of guy, Deion Sanders, that a lot of these players identify with. And that's the other part of this. If you want to win in the NFL, a lot of these players you know, and I think the number is 70% of the, or 60 to 70% of these players in the NFL is the number that high. I, 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 it's that high who are black. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's right. You're right there. Yeah. So they're, you know, they're looking for coaches, leaders who look like them, who understand them, uh, the way they grew up, how they interact day to day. And so, you know, if you want a winner, uh, that's why sometimes looking to diversity, I think, is is a winning formula. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. And something you said earlier is just so probative. You said, you know, you really get on, you know, it's, it, it bothers you when someone says in justifying their, their uh, selection. Yeah, this was just the right person at the right time. Um, another one, Jeff, I was just comfortable with this person. You know, I just immediately felt comfortable. That's right. Another That's one. Right. You know, this person really reminded me of me when I was 36. <laughs> you know, all That's of right. these go in the same direction and they all are disadvantageous, um, as a general matter to, to candidates of color. And, um, you're right. You know, Deion Sanders probably, you know, I don't think Deion Sanders reminds any NFL owner of themselves when they were younger, but this guy wins. You are correct. He went on the field. You know, you know, I, you know, when he first got the job, Jack, I, kind of, I thought maybe it was a, some sort of publicity stunt. You know, he's got this great job as a commentator, he's a Hall of Fame, all this sort of stuff. Um, but he goes down there and he coaches and he recruits and he just got this. Was it a, a four star or five star, uh, DB? I think it was that just came who, who decommitted from Florida State to go to Jackson State. I think it was. I mean, he is building a juggernaut and I think you are right. If an NFL team were to hire him now, he would improve that NFL team without question. But I think there is likely a reticence around hiring, um, co quote unquote coach prime for an NFL head coaching position. And if you, if what you want to do is win, I don't think you should have that reticence. 
That's a good way to end it. Jeremy Duru, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. Hey, thank you, Jeff. Appreciate you. And Hornaday, chief film critic for the Washington Post, joins us now to talk about, well, the nominees for the 94th Oscar. So, Anne, does this phrase ring a bell? Movie lovers unite. That's what that those were the words of David Rubin, the Academy president, when he kicked off the nominations this morning. And it was kind of a I I know what he's going for. And, you know, usually the Oscars are have been the convening ritual for movie lovers. Um, But of course, for the last two years, we've been anything but united, you know, in terms of people not being able to gather in theaters. Um, And it's been such a watershed change in terms of people's viewing habits and uh, obviously, with with in 2021, Spider Man convened and and got people out again and into the theaters again. But for the mo- but for many of these movies, and especially some of the nominees for Best Picture, these were movies that did well with audiences at home rather than in theaters. So the we'll see if the show, the telecast itself, can can unite um, viewers. But for right now, I kind of feel like film going and film culture is kind of fragmented still Mm, but there is so much you know whether you like to watch it at home on the small big screen if you get what i mean or if you like to watch it uh in a movie theater like we used to do uh in large part there is a lot there's so much to see you know it is really incredible you're right i mean i couldn't agree more and honestly jeff it's like i you know i even though i'm I think I speak for a lot of us when I say I do look forward to the day of going back to the theater. And I think we will. I don't think it's gone forever at all. But it is nice to have the flexibility, you know, and to have so many good movies to choose from, regardless of what your comfort level is right now. Um, So and a lot of the nominee, you know, the Best Pictures nominees really reflected that. I mean, we have... um, kind of, you know, we have the big, what I would consider like a big screen extravaganza, like a West Side Story, which was a wonderful film that unfortunately a lot of people didn't see in theaters because it was, it kind of came along right at the same time that Omicron came along. And I, I have a feeling that its core audience was more in the mood to stay home at that moment than not. Um, and, you know, or something like that, you know, like Guillermo del Toro's film noir, Nightmare Alley, which, you know, I think had a lot of problems narratively. I don't think it necessarily sticks the landing. I think it kind of falls apart in the third act, but it sure is pretty to look at. Um, and then you have, you know, really sort of, and Dune, of course, that bit, the big sci-fi epic, which was dazzling on the big screen. Um, and then you have smaller things like Coda, which was on Apple, a, a real crowd pleaser coming of age um coming of age movie or a western slash psychological thriller like power of the dog which has been i think doing really quite well on netflix so yeah it's a it's an interesting kind of diverse lineup of of films and before we get uh deeper into the nominees i wanted to ask you this question because i'm just curious about this it seems to me that there is a larger pool these days of really good actors. You know, I don't know if that's any different from any other time in history, but to me, it seems like there is a larger pool of top notch acting performances. Would you agree or disagree? 
you know, I, I don't know about being, there being more, you know, like our, let's see, I guess another way to put that would be like, are we, are we seeing better, more better actors? You know, like, are they just, um, are there more people working at the top of their game? I guess, I guess that's true. And I think one, I think one, um, you know, we've heard a lot in the last few years about Oscars so white and understandably so. And we've heard a lot since me too about, um, diversifying the membership of the academy, both in terms of ethnic identity and gender. But I would venture to say that as important, if not more so, and we're seeing the results more quickly is the result of more international members. You know, they've really expanded their reach to include a more global membership. And I think that that is resulting in movies like Parasite and Roma and this year uh, the Japanese movie Drive My Car being recognized. But to your point, it's also kind of introducing viewers to a lot of actors that we might not have you know, known about before. Um, you know, the Irish actor Kieran Hines was nominated for a truly wonderful supporting performance in Kenneth Branagh's Belfast. I was so happy to see him recognize Cody Smith McPhee. Um, I think he's Australian, um, who was in Power of the Dog. Um, I was kind of rooting for Renata Rensve, who is in a terrific um, Norwegian movie called The Worst Person in the World, which is going to start appearing in theaters soon. She just missed getting nominated. But yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I do think that we have, it does seem like there's just a a larger pool of people that are getting these jobs and that are also getting sort of more visibility thanks to, to places like the Academy recognizing them. I do wonder if Oscar So White has led to, and I think it, it has, but ha- has it led to Hollywood ha- having a more opened, open mind about what they can green light? Uh, because you see a lot, you do see a lot of diversity in films, but you also see more diversity in the type of film that is, you know, getting made, it seems. That's a really good point, and I think, um, you know, the, the the classic sort of formula has been, or not the classic formula, but ever since, I guess 2000 really is when the, the comic book franchise model became the dominant mis- business model for Hollywood. Um, as that became more entrenched, award season became even more important, even though it always has been, but it became even more important to market a certain kind of film. And that's where you did see the diversity of genre. You know, I mean, there are certain genres that will always get made, like a comic book movie, a horror movie. Um, and it's just those kind of human scale dramas, um, that don't have a, don't have an identifiable hook or they might not be based on a, on an identifiable piece of intellectual property, but they're just good movies and the kinds of movies that people still want to go see. Um, if you can, if, if if a movie like Green Book, for example, wins an Oscar, which it did, it's sort of proof of concept that that kind of movie is still viable um, and that audiences do gravitate towards these films. And that's another movie that, frankly, did even better, I think, internationally than it did domestically, which is really interesting to me to show kind of like how these universal stories um, still have appeal and still can be commercial if they're marketed correctly and if they have a little wind at their back thanks to the awards. Without further ado, let's um, let's talk about some of the major categories here. A lightning round. 
Best director. Who do you think? You have Jane Campion, The Power of the Dog. Did I pronounce her name properly? Kenneth Branagh. Belfast. I've been meaning to watch that movie. Uh, Drive My Car. And the director is, you probably know this better than I do. Thank you very much. Paul Thomas Anderson, Licorice Pizza. Steven Spielberg. Oh. An up-and-comer. I think he's going places, this young man. Yeah, he's this new kid. West Side Story. Honestly, my heart tells me I think it's going to go to Jane Campion. This is an interesting story because she's. this is her second nomination, making her the first female director, woman director, to be nominated twice, which is you know a little bit of a watershed. Interestingly enough, she had been nominated for The Piano, and that little... Uh, that little varmint, Steven Spielberg, was nominated the same year, and he he got that award for um, Schindler's List. So this will be an interesting rematch between those two really veteran and venerable and venerated directors. They're both incredibly well-respected um, within the industry. And I just sense that this is her year. So... You can put me down for Jane Campion on that one. All right, I will. Best Actress, Nicole Kidman is up for Being the Ricardos, another movie I need to see, Jessica Chastain, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, haven't seen that one either, Olivia Coleman, The Lost Daughter, Penelope Cruz, Parallel Mothers, Kristen Stewart, Spencer, I did see that. So who do you think is going to win this category? This one, I honestly have no idea, but... I desperately want Penelope Cruz to win just because I parallel mothers was my favorite movie of the year. I am really sad that Pedro Almodovar didn't get more recognition with these nominations, both in terms of just directing and also um, the foreign language category. I mean, he's just been so good for so long that we, I think we are in danger of taking him for granted, but she does deliver an absolutely magnificent performance in that movie. So I really hope the Academy sees fit to reward that. Um, I, I do have a sense. I mean, look, I think Jessica Chastain has a lot of really of goodwill in the industry. She has also done such good, consistent work over the years. She is very good in the eyes of Tammy Faye. It's a really sensitive performance. If you haven't seen it, Jeff, I really recommend you do see. I mean, I, I, I learned something from that movie, and I thought she was absolutely fantastic in it. It's not campy. It doesn't go for the cheap joke at all. It's a very humane, compassionate portrait. So um, I guess my heart wants to go with Penelope, but I would also be really happy to see Jessica Chastain get it. But, you know, there's also great love for Nicole. Yeah, this is I, this is a big question mark. Sorry. All right. I'm having a tough time with this. Oh, my. Uh, yeah, you're having a tough time with this, okay? I, I, I understand. A lot to choose from there, and... And yeah, I, what I try to do leading up to the Oscars is just, I cram. So I watch every single movie I can so that I'm informed by the time the Oscars come around. Isn't that the fun? That's the fun part, right? It's just great. And these are going to be fun to cram. I think you're going to have a really good time. The ones that you've mentioned you haven't seen, I think you're in for some really good experiences here. So, Oh, so much fun. So much fun. All right, so best actor, Will Smith, King Richard. I've seen that. I might just see it again. I liked it so much. Benedict Cumberbatch, The Power of the Dog. There's that movie again. Andrew Garfield, Tick, Tick, Boom. Haven't seen that. Denzel Washington, 
I started the tragedy of Macbeth. I think Denzel looks pretty cool in that movie. There's this something about the way that movie is shot that I love. Javier Bardem being the Ricardos. I forgot he was in that. I got to see that too. All right. So what do you think? Well, I, I think Will Smith's going to win. I really do. Again, he's never won an Oscar. I'm not even sure if he's, has he been nominated before? Was it Ali or? He had to have been, but he's never, and that's another one he's been so good for so long. And it is such an appealing movie and it's such a powerhouse of a performance. Um, I think oftentimes Academy members really do vote with, with what gets them emotionally. And of all of these performances, his is the most emotional. It's funny you say that because as we talk about this movie, I remember tearing up. Oh. I don't like to admit that a lot, but I I teared up with this one. I did too. I mean, it really takes your breath away. I was completely transported by it, even though I know that it really does kind of shave a lot of the rougher edges around – Richard Williams, the real life character, but you know, it is a movie and it's dramatization and it's getting at a truth about parenting. Um, and especially parenting in as an African American man that is that is universal and it and is transcendent and it's powerful and he gets it, he embodies it in this film. So even though it would be fun to see Denzel get it, um, because then he would get into that pantheon of most, you know most Oscars won. Um, But no, I'm going to go with Will Smith on this one. Okay. Best supporting actress, Ariana DeBose, West Side Story, Kirsten Dunst, The Power of the Dog. Uh, I cannot. uh, Anjanae. Anjanae. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ellis. She's a newcomer, right? She's a newcomer. Well, yes and no. She's a newcomer to the Oscars for sure, but she's been, she's been around. Oh, is that wait, wait, is she she plays the wife? Yes. And King Richard. She absolutely. was great. She's fantastic. I she want, was yes. really good. When I was watching the movie, I was thinking, you know, why hasn't there been more buzz about her? You know, and I watched the movie several months ago now. She was really good. And then we have Jesse Buckley in The Lost Daughter and Judy Dench in Belfast. But I like what you were just saying, I would love to see Ingenue Ellis because, again, the movie's called King Richard. It's about Richard Williams. But Ingenue Ellis comes in and kind of sneakily steals this movie, you know, in terms of the scenes that she's in. Because, as you know, the story, the, the movie is really about Richard grooming Venus Williams um, to be the superstar. And Serena is sort of quietly making her way, and it's and it's Mrs. Williams who's working with Serena. So there's this kind of wonderful little subtext and kind of, you know, beeline story that, of course, everybody knows is going to become the A story eventually, but that's not the story the movie's telling. And it's kind of a – I thought it was a wonderful device. I, I really thought it was a, tra- a great way to get at that family story. But her work with Serena and her performance as this ferociously devoted mother – who's working with in tandem with her husband to, to raise this family. I don't know. It was just, again, deeply, deeply moving to me. And I thought she just did a terrific yeah, job. Yeah, she was really good. All right. And perhaps she will become a household name. And I won't butcher her name next time around. Best Supporting Actor, Cody Smith-McPhee, The Power of the Dog, Troy 
cuts are these are also these aren't household names yet. Uh, is it Kotzer? Kotzer? It's Kotzer, Troy Kotzer. Okay, Kieran Hines, Belfast. Jesse Plemons, The Power of the Dog. And is he the one who's married to Kirsten Dunst? Yes, a married two married couples up for Oscars this year: Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons, and Javier Bardem and um, Penelope oh, Cruz. Wow, that is fun. J.K. Simmons. He's 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 quickly become one of my favorite actors over the last three or four years. This is another toss-up for me. I don't really have a very strong prediction. I would be more than happy to see any of these gentlemen win. Although I will say, I was personally disappointed not to see Mike Faced nominated for West Side Story. Have you seen West Side Story yet? All right. When you see West Side Story, you will know what I'm talking about. Mike Faced plays Riff, and he's probably the best Riff ever, ever, bar none, no matter what, no matter what show, no matter what movie. And I'll just leave it. I'm going to leave that there. And then when you watch it, you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, But of these... You know, look, I'd love to see Troy Kotzer win because, I mean, I was a big fan of CODA. I thought he was fantastic in it. He's very funny, a very, very grounded, very believable. This is the story of the young woman who's the only hearing member of her family. And she's sort of trying to break out of her family nest and find her own way. And Troy Kotzer plays her dad. And it's just a great, great character. And he plays him beautifully. But honestly, I wouldn't really have a problem with any of these gentlemen winning they're all they're all really terrific all right well i think you are really terrific and i am going to give you the acf oscar and hornaday chief film critic for the washington post thank you thank you jeff that is this week's america change forever thanks to paul woody woodhall and district productive i'm jeff pegues and that is how america changed forever Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.